this morning, if you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 21. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 21. This is the day after the triumphal entry on Monday. He enters into Jerusalem on Tuesday. He comes to the temple and he will clear it of the activities in which they are engaged in, for it is displeasing to the Lord, and they had turned the temple into a marketplace. Mark chapter 11, verses 11 or 12 through 21. The scriptures read, On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den? The chief priests and the scribes heard this, and they began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, They would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks. And ask, God, that once again you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and wonderful things from thy precious word, which gives light and life to those who would embrace the truths therein. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, Christmas is around the corner, and there is a book that was written by Adam English entitled, The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus. Now, history tells us a little bit about this individual who ended up having, being named Santa Claus. It was the life of a man named Nicholas, Nicholas of Myra. Really early on, he was a church leader in the early church, whom we know today by that Santa Claus. And there was a story about him, story that is very unlike the caricature that is often portrayed in today's society, today's culture, where you have an elderly man who is holly jolly and always gracious. 
The story about him occurred when he was 70 years old, between 330 and 332, when he was serving as the bishop of Myra, modern-day Turkey. It was a story about him, an account in which he displayed courage and righteous anger, the strength of an individual to fight for what was right. And the story goes on about how Nicholas, this bishop of Myra, received a report from others about Eustanthius, who was the governor of the region. And that story, that account, was about how Eustanthius was going to kill three innocent men. And so he set off at a brisk pace to the praetorium or the, or the palace where Eustanthius was ruling in order to talk with him because he suspected there was foul play. This governor was known to take bribes. This governor was known to be corrupt. And en route, he hears about how these three individuals had been already moved to, quote, the place of the beheading known as Byra. So he turns around and he's headed off to Byra now in order to save these three men because of his suspicions of injustice that was happening to them, this Nicholas of Myra. And he bursts into the plaza in Byra, and there he finds, and he wades his way through the crowd, because the crowd had all gathered. These scenes of execution were scenes by which crowds would gather, and he shoves everyone aside, all of these people who are watching this scene unfold, to find that he finds these three men kneeled on the ground with their hands tied behind their backs, their faces covered with linens, and they had just given themselves up for dead. And he bursts into this crowd, he yanks the sword away from the executioner, he throws it to the ground, and he cuts these men loose, and he sets them free. Because at that time, the constitution of the area allowed the bishop to intervene in legal matters such as this. And then he marched off, he marched off in front of all of these wild-eyed, gawking people who are wondering what in the world is happening, and he went off to find the governor. Why? In order to chastise him for his miscarriage of justice because he believed that these three were innocent. And back at the praetorium where he finally arrives, where the governor is, he broke down the door, he bursts inside, and the sentinel who is there hurries off to tell the governor that this Nicholas, this bishop, has arrived to talk with him. And so the governor comes out, and he's trying to maintain his composure and his old self, and he begins to compliment and show deference to the bishop of Myra here, Nicholas, and he is cut off in what he is trying to say, and in mid-sentence, and then the bishop, Nicholas, begins to accuse him, calling him a thief, an enemy of God, a sacrilegious and bloodthirsty and unjust individual. And according to the historical account, this is what he says. And you even dare to come before me, you who do not fear God, you who had the cruel intention to kill innocent people. Since you committed this kind of wickedness, I cannot have any respect for you. God is reserving the unjust a tortured life. He knows your government he knows how your government works and how this province allows looting and killing men against the law and without trial for deadly greed and gain, unquote. The governor 
just wilted underneath these words and he fell to his knees and he begged for forgiveness and then Nicholas prayed for him and pardoned his guilt. That is a character of the person that we now call Santa Claus in real life. But here, Nicholas, the bishop, was driven by his righteousness, by righteous anger, is driven by the truth. And when you're driven by righteousness and truth, the, the fear of who you're standing before, there, it goes away because of the corrupt, false authority that they have because your authority is from God. And this morning we see something similar in Jesus as he comes to the temple driven by righteous anger and driven by truth to confront the corruption that is in the temple because he himself, God himself in human flesh, is the one who has the authority to and he comes in righteousness to condemn the corruption that has occurred, to condemn all of these individuals who had turned the temple area into a marketplace. This morning we begin looking at this section. And in chapter 11 last week, we began this last phase of Jesus' life. An entire third of the Gospel of Mark chronicles his last week. From chapter 11 to chapter 16, we will look at the last week of the life of Jesus. And last week we began to look at the triumphal entry where Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a colt to the accolades and the praises of the people who had, who had welcomed him into Jerusalem. Up to 100,000 people or so had lined the way estimates are, throwing down their robes in a symbol of submission to the king, saying, Hosanna, which means save now. But the expectation of the people was completely different than what reality would be because Jesus wasn't going to overthrow Rome. He was going to die on the cross for sinners. And today's text, before his crucifixion comes on Friday, we see that Jesus will curse a fig tree, symbolic of the corruption of the Jewish religious system, and then he will confront the corruption that is in the temple. So we look at the first incident in which he comes to this fig tree. In verse 12, the fruitless fig tree, and therein he decries judgment. On the next day they came from Bethany, he became hungry. Now he's in Bethany, and that's just a couple of miles away, maybe a half hour walk away, and that's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. He often spent time there, and Jesus became hungry, just like any other human. He became hungry, and he seized this fig tree in leaf. Now, to understand this particular incident, we have to understand a little bit about fig trees and what they were like. In Palestine, fig trees were fairly common, and sometimes they would grow very large, up to 20 feet in height, and they would have branches that would span out another 20 feet. They would be trees in which people would gather there would be trees that would give great shade. There was a place that people would gather and people would talk. It was seen as a sign of blessing. When the Jews came into the promised land back in Deuteronomy and Moses was giving that next generation a taste of what it was going to be like in the land, he said this in Deuteronomy 8.8, 8, that it was a land of wheat and barley of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. 
Even through Zechariah, the Lord promised his people that when the Messiah would come a second time, he would, quote, remove the iniquity of the land in one day, and, quote, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. So fig trees were seen as a symbol of peace and prosperity. They were seen as a good thing. It was seen as something of value. And the converse is true. That the land, when it was without trees, was not good. It was a symbol of judgment and deprivation. Why? Because if you didn't know a little bit about the land of Israel, the geography, you know, they would always have people who would invade or there would be invaders who would come north or south through the land and they would bring their armies through. And when they would bring their armies through, many times 100,000 plus people would come on through. And what would they need? Well, they were off to war, and so they would cut down the trees to use for their war machines. They would cut down their trees to use for firewood. They would use those things, and they weren't caring about the trees that were there. Well, when trees weren't available, they would cut down fruit trees. They would cut down shade trees. And in fact, trees were seen as a sign of prosperity. At one time in Israel's history, they would tax people depending upon how many trees they had on their land. And that wasn't a very good approach because you wanted to save taxes. You cut down the trees on your land. Simply to say, though, having a fig tree was like having a nice backyard canopy. And people would gather around the fig tree in order to fellowship in order to socialize. It would protect you from the hot Middle Eastern sun. It was seen as something that was a blessing. Now, a normal fig tree, a normal fig tree would be harvested sometime between mid-August and mid-November. Now, this is the springtime in which this is happening. Passover would be end of March to April, sometime like that. But here, the normal harvest time would be mid-August through October. They would harvest these figs from the tree, and then what would happen is that these trees would begin to grow these little sprouts, these little buds with miniature fruit that would stay that way through the winter. And these would swell, these little buds would swell into small green sort of mini fruits, not fully mature until the fall, but it would swell into these mini fruits and then the leaves would come after that. So, when Jesus came to this tree, what does he see? He sees that it has leaves, but no fruit. It has leaves, but no fruit. Now, Mark says that it was not the season for figs, and what he means by that, it's not the season for the full-grown fig harvest, which is down in the fall between August and October or so, something like that. But when Jesus comes, he sees this tree has all of these leaves, but not even the small fruit that is there. And so there is something wrong with this tree. There is something wrong with this tree. We don't know what it is. Maybe it's poor soil. Maybe it's in the wrong place, whatever the case may be. He didn't even see the small little figs that are yet to develop, and sometimes people would still eat those small figs. But something was not right about this tree. This tree was a fruitless tree. It looked good. It had the leaves. It was attractive, but there was no fruit. And Jesus curses this. This is the only miracle of Jesus in which it is a miracle of destruction. And because of its fruitful fruitlessness, it was only that which was an outward trapping. It only looked good. And he says to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And later on, as we read, 
The next morning when they come by, they saw the disciples see, verse 20, the disciples see that the tree withered from its roots up. And Peter makes that observation. And Jesus uses this as an illustration of what was going to happen to Jerusalem and Israel in the coming years. In the Old Testament, a fig tree, a fig tree was often used to refer to Israel in Jeremiah 8.13, Hosea 9.10, Joel 1.7. All these passages refer to Israel as a fig tree, and here there's a fig tree without any fruit. Looked good on the outside with the trappings, but there was no real fruit to it. That would be just like the nation, a superficial religious system which the Jews had all the outward trappings, all of the regulations in place without any spiritual fruit, and it was an empty facade. As one commentator writes, on this occasion, he used a barren fig tree to illustrate a spiritually barren nation. The illustration was a visual parable designed to portray the spiritually degenerated nation of Israel. And Jesus would now come into the temple and we're able to see some of its degeneracy, some of its facade of what they were doing, of spiritual superficiality, of simply that which is on the outside of religious superficial practices. We see that in verse 15. They came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple. He began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now, there, this is the time of the Passover. This is the very last week of the Lord Jesus' life. We come to this very last week, the day of the week today, that would be Tuesday here in the Passover and this annual feast. It was a huge, huge deal. It was a major feast. Every Jew aged 12 and older would be required to attend in Jerusalem. And they would make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover. It was a memorial. It was a memorial of the greatest event in the mind of the Jew. If you ask the Jew what was the greatest event in all of Israel's history, they would say it is the Passover. It is the Passover in which Israel was delivered from the hands of the Egyptians. Israel was delivered from the hands of the Egyptians, and it reminded them that Israel was in slavery. They were in bondage for hundreds of years, and the Lord sent an angel of death as one of the plagues. The angel of death would come and slay every firstborn of the household. And Israel, if they wanted to be spared, what they would do, they would slaughter a lamb. They would slaughter a lamb and take that blood and spread that blood on the doorposts of their home. So when the angel of death came and they saw that blood on the outside, it would pass over their home and the firstborn son would be spared. The Egyptians had no such provision, so when the angel of death came, all of their firstborn sons died, and it prompted Pharaoh to release the Israelites, release them and deliver them from bondage, which was what God did. And so every single year on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, the lamb would be chosen, and on the 14th day by law, the Passover would occur 
And so when Jesus entered in to Jerusalem on that 10th day, that Monday, to the accolades of the people, it was him who was chosen to be the sacrificial lamb by God and eternity past that this would happen. That lamb, a young first-year male lamb, had to have no blemish. And it was taken, it was going to be slaughtered as a sacrificial lamb. That was the feast of the Passover. That was a celebration. And afterwards, I should say, would be this seven-day feast, feast of unleavened bread. So you had the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, which would last a week after that. And so sometimes when you read, you'll hear a read about the Passover. Sometimes it's used to refer to that particular day, that event. Sometimes it's used to refer to the entire feast, which would be a whole week. But the Passover was a monumental event in the life of Israel. To the Israelite, it was the greatest event in their mind, the greatest event in their history. And throngs of people would come, would congregate in Jerusalem from all over the region. From all over the region, they would travel from afar. And as they would come to Jerusalem, as the people would flow into Jerusalem, they would sing the Psalms of Ascent. Sometimes you'll see that as a head title of some of the Psalms, 120, I think, to 134. These Psalms that they would sing, how wonderful it is for brothers to dwell in unity, etc. All of these Psalms that you might read, and they would sing these Psalms of ascent as they ascended into Jerusalem. And here, the population of Jerusalem, which had some hundred to 300,000 inhabitants, would swell. And at this case, possibly well over two million, two and a half million people. Why? Josephus records, you see, that some quarter million lambs were slain. Some quarter million lambs were slain, and a lamb would be adequate, according to the priests, to cover over ten people. So you had a massive number of people who would flood into Jerusalem all at this time. And it would be like the crowded fairgrounds in which people would fill up every inn, every room, every stable, every bed of somebody that they knew. And then they would come to the temple. Now the temple, there were mercenaries in the temple. That's what they did. The temple was divided into four sections. The four sections with the largest division called what was called the court of the Gentiles. It was the outer court of the Gentiles. And this is where Jesus would have entered and seen all of this commotion happening. Now, the court of the Gentiles was extremely large. You're talking about a, an area of some 500 yards by 325 yards. This was about 35 acres large. It is a large area. You know, when you look at a football field, Century Link field, that would be about one. 1.3 acres. So you're talking about like 25 football fields full of things. If you've ever been to one of those home shows or RV shows or whatever, they're out of the football field. Well, think about 25 of them all lined up. It was enclosed by a portico. There were rows of columns and Herod rebuilt this. He put in rows of columns, according to Josephus, those columns that would be there to hold up this portico around the area. With those Towering, towering pillars would require three people to hold hands, and that's how wide it would be. It would wrap around these to be able to hug these large, large columns. And it was in this area of the court of the Gentiles where they were selling animals and they were doing money exchanging. James Edwards of the 
Pillar in New Testament commentary writes, the volume of trade that went on in the court of the Gentiles was conducted on a scale commensurate with the grandeur of Herod's temple itself. Another writer writes, this huge quantity of animals, so great as to be almost unbelievable, gave the temple cults its particular stamp. Day after day, masses of victims were slaughtered there and burnt, and in spite of the thousands of priests, when one of the great festivals came around, the multitude of sacrifices was so great that they could hardly cope with them. This was sort of like a the virtual, virtual temple stock market. It was called the Bazaar of Annas. The Bazaar of Annas, because Annas was the greedy high priest. He was a Sadducee who would later, later have Jesus stand before him when Jesus was brought on trial. After Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would stand before Annas. And this was called the Bazaar of Annas because they had a system there. They had a system there in which businesses would be conducted to fund the temple, and to make themselves rich. And they had a monopoly on the temple business. The Sadducees were the ones who were conducting and ran the temple business. The Pharisees, they were the ones who were more, uh, they were concerned, more concerned with the religious practices, the legalistic religious practices of the people. But Jesus condemned all of this, saying, you have turned and made it into a robber's den. Now, how is that? Well, it was because, you see, the Old Testament dictated that a certain animal sacrifice, if you're coming from far distance, you know, you, you'd bring your, 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 your lamb. You'd bring your lamb, and sometimes if you were coming from really far, well, it was too far for your little lamb to travel, so you'd have to go get one. But you'd need a lamb that was pure, that was without blemish. And so somebody would come, they would bring their little lamb, and they'd have to have their lamb checked, certified by someone in order to have it pass its test as to be sure that it would pass the inspection well. Oftentimes, what would happen was that somebody would check it and they'd say, nope, 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 I'm sorry, your lamb doesn't qualify because it has this blemish or that blemish. You're going to have to buy one of our certified lambs, our pre-certified lambs that are already pre-checked and we'll exchange this for you. We'll give you a discount because just for you, you know, just a discount. We'll give you a big discount and here you have to buy one of ours so we'll trade it for you. Or if you came from far away, you had to buy one of their certified lambs or if you were poor, perhaps some other animal. But you had to have all of this checked by them so that you would be able to sacrifice in a way that would be proper. Now, every individual, in, order, in, in addition to bringing a certified lamb for sacrifice, and you would be, you know, have to exchange for certain animals, and of course they had plenty of these. You're talking about a couple million people, and, and that would be a lot of animals that they would sell and trade and I'm sure bargain with. But every man, excluding women and children, had to pay an annual temple tax as well, a half of a shekel. And you couldn't pay it with any old coin. I mean, especially a Roman coin. A Roman coin just wouldn't do. Why? Because a Roman coin would have the head of Caesar on it. It would have the head of Caesar on it, and that was considered by the Jewish authorities as idolatry. We don't accept that kind of coinage, and that's why there were money changers. And these money changers would say, no, 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 you'd have to have a, a, a proper coin without any idol of somebody, especially somebody who claims to be God, and so we're going to have to exchange that for you. Here's a Tyrian coin, which was used, and they would charge you a very unfavorable rate of 
upwards of some 12% upon the coinage you have. So you had to pay your shekel, and they'd charge you 12% on top of that, and so that's the way that they would make money. That's why there were money changers. So you wanted to go, you paid your temple tax, of course, that would support the priest, and then you would pay this whatever money it would cost to get a certified animal in order that you'd be able to make a sacrifice. And that's why all of these people were here, and all of this price gouging would be going on, which was why Jesus accused them of being robbers. Robbers in a den, they would milk the people. They would cheat them out of whatever they had. You can imagine what it would have been like. You can imagine what the scene would have been like. A huge area, and the Lord Jesus enters into this temple courtyard, the temple that was to be set aside as a house of prayer. For Isaiah 56, 7 expresses what God's desire is. Even though, it says, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt sacrifices and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The place where the worship of God of would take place. The God of heaven who had created everything would welcome people from all over the world. That people from every tongue and tribe and nation could come and pray to God. The court of the Gentiles where they could come and bow in reverence and worship to the sovereign God of the universe had been turned into a stockyard had been turned into a stockyard in which the stench and the filth of all of these animals and people sitting cross-legged behind tables exchanging money, charging exorbitant interest and exchange rates was an offense to God. It was a shame. And they should have felt shame, but they were shameless. For them, it was just a business. For them, it was so that they could make money. And there are still people like that who view the church as a business. I've had people call the office, you know, all sorts of people call the office. Pastor, I'd like to, I'd like to set up my tables and sell, uh, you know, these purses that I make and we'll give the church a cut, you know. All the people, they don't have to buy. We won't pressure them. But, you know, we want to sell our things out there for you and it'll benefit the church the way the church can make money. Some people see the church as a business, so they visit different churches, and there they are. They, they want to make business contacts and pass out all their business cards or whatever. That's not the purpose of God's church. That's not the purpose of God's church. And Jesus came in, and he saw they had turned this into a stockyard, all the bleeding of animals. And you can imagine, here he was incensed with righteous anger, and he overturns the tables of the money changers. He rebukes the sellers of the animal sacrifices or the, those who are selling animals. And he prevents others from traveling through with all of their things. And you can imagine the mayhem that would have been there. Here you are a money changer and you have your table overturned. And there you can probably imagine all the men who are just crawling around trying to collect all their money. They're scrounging on the ground. And we'd overthrow all of these pens full of animals and the animals would start running away or the pigeons for the poor they would start flying away and everybody would running after all of their animals and the bleeding of sheep and how all of this sheer confusion chaos and pandemonium would have erupted because Jesus was casting them out he was telling them this is not the place for something like this this is to be the house of prayer 
But the religious leaders, with a lack of reverence for the holiness of God, used the temple as a money-making business and no longer as a house of God for worship. And it can be the same for us even today, in which there might be a lack of reverence, a lack of fear, a lack of respect for a holy God, where God is not central, where He is not glorified above all else, and His word is not honored, and sin has clouded the heart, the love of money has taken over. If you had walked into a place like this, how would you have responded? Would that also anger you? You walked into the temple grounds and you saw that this was all a charade to bilk people and take advantage of people. What would you have done? Would the things that offend Jesus also offend you? You truly love God and love what he loves and hate what God hates. The chief priests and the scribes, it says in verse 18, they saw this and they began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him. You know, it's one thing for Jesus to be all the way up in northern Galilee, to do miracles, to preach to the people, to make claims. But now, from their perspective, he was in their very own backyard. He was in their very own backyard, and they must have been livid. They had wanted him dead from early on. They had wanted him dead from early on because of his claims. But now, but now, after tens of thousands of people had lined the road and welcomed in Jerusalem as the Messiah, now that he had brought their lucrative temple business to a halt, they wanted to destroy Jesus. Why? Because, the text says, for they were afraid of him. They were afraid of him. You know, it's the same way today. When people do not want Christ in their life and they fight against it, motivation is often fear because Jesus is an affront to our sinful desires. People wish to live in their own sin. People want to live in their own ways. And when Jesus and the Word of God comes and confronts that, it is an offense to them and they are afraid because they do not want to repent and change in their life. Jesus is seen, therefore, as a threat to them. The Word of God is seen as a threat to them, a threat to destroy what they so love, which is their own sin. Not a Lord to bow down to, but they are motivated because they are afraid, just like these religious leaders. Now, there's another group of people here in this whole scene, in this whole account, there's another group of people they don't bow the knee to Jesus either. They're not outwardly antagonistic. They're not combative people, no. They're spectators. The Bible tells us in verse 18, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. No other man had spoken like Jesus. No other man had come into the temple and overturned the money changers and let the animals loose and stopped all of the traffic that was going in and out of that. But the vast majority of these people never followed Jesus all the way to the cross. In fact, all abandoned him. And at the end of Jesus' ministry, when we look in the book of Acts, there were some 500 plus people who were genuine believers by the time of his resurrection. 
And that is true today as well. That is true today as well. Lots of people find Jesus fascinating. They find him interesting. They even participate in the church. They are like many on the temple grounds, just coming here and there, doing the temple business, flowing along. The San Jose Mercury News once had a column and an article in which James Kelly of Washington, D.C. is one of a small group at his local church who, who are enthusiastic, who are enthusiastic of a particular denomination, but who do not believe in God. This is what he says, that individual. We all love the incense, the stained glass windows, the organ music, the vestments, and all of that. It's drama. It's aesthetics. It's the ritual. That's neat stuff. I don't want to give up all that just because I don't believe in God, unquote. Lots of people are fascinated, interested in Jesus. They're standing around astonished. They love the things that they can get, but are unwilling to bow the knee in repentance to Jesus. They follow Oh, I can imagine all of these money changers and all of the people who were selling animals, they probably followed all the rules, but they weren't following Jesus. Someone like those, all part of the Jewish corrupt system, a superficial religion that doesn't save, they were like the fig tree, those religious leaders and the whole system, just like that fig tree. Oh, everything seems to be going smoothly with nice leaves, giving shade sometimes, but there is no fruit. There is no fruit. Looking good on the outside, a great place to socialize, a great place to gather around the tree and talk and fellowship, a great shade, but there is no fruit. And in the end, Jesus would curse that tree. So two questions come in conclusion. One, what is your own heart like before God? What is your own heart like before God? Is there true, genuine fruit? Is there genuine fruit, a genuine desire to love God, to serve God, to follow the word of God, or is it all superficial religious practices? Going to church, doing the right thing, serving, being active doesn't save anyone. True fruit shows itself in a change of a heart. The heart's desire where God grants that person a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart's orientation to love God, to follow God. Not perfectly because no one else, no one is ever going to be perfect. But that change in attitude, that change in perspective, that genuine desire, what is your own heart like? Secondly, one of the misconceptions about Jesus is that Jesus is always soft and warm and nice, and as one author puts it, we've, quote-unquote, tamed Jesus. We've tamed Jesus, and he is like a Mr. Rogers with a beard. If Jesus were always like Mr. Rogers, I don't think the religious leaders would hate him so much, and I don't think that the Roman soldiers would have nailed Mr. Rogers to the cross. We'd all like to be well-liked, non-confrontive, but Jesus here, Jesus here confronts sin and unrighteousness with a righteous anger. Are you courageous enough to stand for what is right, to stand for what is true, to speak up when you ought to? This is the Jesus that is presented here. Not one that just goes along, 
Not one that just conforms in worldliness. No, this is the Jesus that is born in order to die for sinners. Who are you like? May we be like Jesus. Not just following what he says, but following who he is and being more like him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks. And Father, you know the hearts of each and every person who is here. Father, you know the motives of our heart. You know the condition of our heart. You know where our heart lies and the loves of our heart. And Father, we pray that if any are here who do not know you, that you would transform their heart, save them, draw them to yourself, give them a heart of flesh, replacing that heart of stone. We pray, Father, that our hearts also might not be seared in our conscience because of sin. We pray that you would sensitize our own hearts, that we would desire to be true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth, who worship in a way that pleases you from our heart. We pray, God, help our hearts to be right with you. We pray, God, may we be more like Jesus. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.